A number of years ago, I was in a Romanian village. And uh, the reason I was there is because I had partnered with a Romanian church planter to help him, support him, and encourage him in his church planting efforts in this particular village. Now, there were no uh, believers or evangelical churches in the area, uh, but this church planter had done a lot of work evangelizing the neighborhood and things like that, winning people to Christ. So one of the things he proceeded to do as he was showing me and one of my colleagues around was he took us to this particular home and he introduced us to a family, a husband, wife, and beautiful three kids, Romanian kids. And so uh, one of the things that uh, Christians do in Romania, which I think we should do more often, is every time you meet a new believer back there, one of the things they do, first order of business, is for you to share your testimonies with one another. And so these believers began sharing their testimonies with us. First, the wife began sharing how she didn't know about Christ and her upbringing and so on. And Joseph, the church planter who had introduced us, Joseph was the one who came into town, came and visited, helped a little bit, and then shared the gospel and she became a Christian. Then it was the turn of this woman's husband to share his testimony, a remarkable testimony of God's grace and God's transformation, just the transforming power of the gospel, my goodness. This man basically proceeded to share that he was the village drunk and everyone in the village knew him. He was just an angry, sour individual who chose to drown his miseries um, in, in drink. And so he'd go to the pub, he had his drinking buddies that'd be watching their favorite team play and they would drink themselves stupid. And then on his way home, he'd be yelling and singing and just causing all manner of chaos on his way home. And when he would get home, he was very uh, violent and very abusive, both to his kids and to his wife, physically and verbally abusive to them. And he kept on, he kept on just sharing how sorry he was for being so lost and so vi violent. And he kept apologizing to his wife for just his poor behavior. The authorities were constantly at his door, he said, because the neighbors would have to call the police because he would be breaking stuff when he was in this drunken stupor um, that he would be in. So he said, Joseph rolled into town, tried to share Jesus, but again, remember, he was a very bitter and sour person, so he was difficult to engage with, but Joseph did not give up. Joseph continued sharing the gospel and helping out as best as he could, and, the, and this Christian brother now said, one day as Joseph was sharing the gospel, God created, man rebelled, Christ redeemed, and Christ will make all things new. As Joseph was sharing the gospel message with him, the light bulb turned on and he became a Christian. And he said, he looked at me in the eye and he said, brother, my life radically changed. And how did his life radically change? Well, he stopped having these urges to go to the pub and have a drink with his buddies. His anger issues basically subsided and his personality just mellowed and he was gentle, way more gentle than he ever was in his life, he said. No longer was he yelling and screaming and fighting with his wife and his kids. The authorities were no longer coming uh, around and so skeptical neighbors began saying, oh, you know, we'll give you a few days. Okay, maybe a couple of weeks or maybe a few months and you'll go back to your usual self. You'll just backslide and go back to your old 
wayward lifestyle. His drinking buddies would come over and tell him, hey, our favorite team is playing. Why don't you come and join us at the pub? And as tempting as it was, he chose to say, no, I am done with that lifestyle. I'm a new man now, surely. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in crisis, a new creation, the old has gone and the new has come. This was who this man was, a former drunk who had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, responded to it when the light bulb went on, and now here he is standing firm as God strengthens him to live his life in a manner worthy of the gospel. And he's standing firm now and holding on to the faith, going to church regularly, reading the Bible, things he never used to do. There's this radical change that had taken place. And I'm sitting there just listening to this man's story, just reminded of the call of God upon his life. And this is basically what Paul is doing in the book of First and Second Thessalonians. In particular, our passage today, Second Thessalonians chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 13 to 17. What Paul is doing here, he is encouraging the Thessalonian church, reminding them of the salvific call of God upon their lives. See, they had heard the gospel And now Paul is motivating them. Hey, you heard the gospel. You responded to it. Praise God. And now stand firm. Hold fast to the faith that you now have in the face of of all this uh, persecution that you may be experiencing. Or in the face of all this false teaching that is coming your way. Stand firm. Hold your ground as you remember the salvific call. And so the three hooks that will be uh, just working our way through as we look at this text, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 to 17, the three hooks for my sermon are these. God's call. We'll talk about God's call for a minute. Then we'll talk about our respond. How do we respond to God's call? And then finally, we'll talk about God strengthening us, how God strengthens his people as they continue to live out their lives in a manner worthy of the calling of God. So God's call. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 to 14 to start. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord. Jesus Christ. Let's stop there. So you'll notice in verse 13, if you're a good Bible student, if you're a good Bible study student, you will have noticed the word but at the beginning of verse 13. So this means that Paul has been saying some stuff from chapter, chapter 2 verse 1 all the way to verse 12, so that in, chapter th- in, in, um, in verse 13, he shifts to, he shifts his, his argument with this word, but, but we ought to always. So what was he saying? As we saw last week, Paul was encouraging the persecuted church in Thessalonica. And they were being persecuted for their faith. And not only that, they were very anxious and they were very alarmed because there was a lot of false teaching happening. So in other words, there's a lot of pressure from within and there's also a lot of pressure from without. And so these Christians are going through some just turbulent times. And so Paul is writing to them, encouraging them, telling them, hey, 
Christ will come back again. And so he will unpack the nature of the second coming of Christ in chapter 2, verse 1 to 12, as we saw last week. Not only that, he will remind them that God is sovereign over the events of the second coming. God is, God is in control. Yes, things are going to be crazy, but God is in control. And not only that, God is also going to judge those who refuse to love the truth. Those who are the ones persecuting you, dear Christian, God is going to bring judgment on them. This story will end well. So as he's now continuing to to remind them of these things, he shifts gears. He ends in verse 12 talking about God's judgment over those who refuse to love the truth. But, verse 13, he now shifts gears to God's grace and mercy towards who? Towards these believers. And so he is thanking God then for the Thessalonian Christians because God had chosen to save them. And God had called them through the preaching of the gospel. He's thanking God for them. So let's just pause here for a moment. And let me just take a small little tangent, come back. The tangent is this. When was the last time you actually thanked God for saving your fellow brother and sister in the faith? When was the last time? Now, of course, we thank God when someone becomes a Christian. We are so excited. We thank God for them. They're baby Christians. We want to see them baptized. We are thanking God for them. And then after that, we kind of stop. Not all of us, but many of us do. When was the last time you actually sat down and prayed and said, Lord, I thank you for saving Mark Birch. Thank you, Lord, for saving Jonathan Thank you for saving Andrew. Thank you for saving Vic. Thank you for saving Joanne and Suzanne and Rebecca. Thank you for saving these individuals. Thank you for opening their eyes to the glorious nature of the gospel. See, we don't do this, do we? We don't do this. We don't celebrate the things, that the salvation that God has extended or granted those who are part of the faith. And Paul is now giving us an example here thanking God for choosing to save these ones, calling them. And as they choose to respond to the gospel, man, he will call them to do other things. So now there's a contrast here. Verse 12, those who refuse to love the truth, there's judgment there. And then verse 13, man, God loves the Thessalonian Christian. That's why he chose to save That's why he called them. There's a contrast here. Those who refuse and those who respond. Let's unpack this a little bit. Look at what Jesus will say to some of the Jews who come to him asking him if he's the true Messiah. This is John chapter 10, verse 22 to 30. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Very simple question. Just tell us plainly. So Jesus answered them, verse 25, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my my father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. It's a very interesting image that Jesus chooses to use here. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. He's saying to these Jews, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. Why is he using this image of sheep? Well, in the first century, let us assume that I was a farmer with all these sheep and Mark Birch was a farmer and he had his sheep, Jonathan had his sheep and, and all these people, you also had your sheep. And so now we were all herding our sheep, but then there's times when we have to bring the sheep to the watering hole so that they could quench their thirst. Now, it's not like we are all in a lineup with all my sheep here and then it's now my turn for the sheep to go to the watering home. No, all the animals, when they hear the water and they see the water, they all come and gather by the watering hole. So these, they, they, they're all intermixed and there's no, uh, oh, the black sheep are mine and the, and the, the red sheep are his and the white ones are his, no. We don't put dye on the animals to know this is yours and this is mine. No, the sheep are sheep. They all mix and they are drinking from the watering hole. But now the question becomes, when it's time to go, how do I know this is my sheep and that one is yours? How do I know? See, in the first century, what shepherds would do, they would whistle, they would sing, and they would tap their staff against rocks. So when it's time to go, what the shepherds would now begin to do, all these shepherds with all their sheep by the watering hole, the shepherds will begin to whistle. And each shepherd had their own distinct way of whistling. And each shepherd would have their own distinct way of singing. Each shepherd would have their own distinct way of tapping against the rocks. And so as the sheep are hearing the sound of their shepherd going further and further, once the watering hole has been closed, the sheep begin to follow the noise they are familiar with. And the sheep will know, that's my shepherd. In other words, they begin to separate. And each sheep now will begin to hear the voice of his shepherd. Question, who's, shep who's your shepherd? And whose voice are you hearing? Who whose voice are you hearing? So when Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm here, I've told you who I am. Still, it's talking to the Jews, I've told you who I am, but you don't believe, which means you ain't my sheep. I'm singing my song. I'm whistling my, my, my tune. I'm tapping my staff on the rocks. And those who are mine will follow. And the reason why you don't believe, the reason why you're not following is because, obviously, you are not my sheep. There's a distinction there. So there's a friend of mine, a, a number of weeks ago, I had breakfast with him. And he proceeded to share his testimony with me, how he became a Christian. He had grown up in a Christian home. Um, but then in his meetings, he kind of decided to walk away from the faith. And the reason for that is he had seen a lot of hypocrisy around. And so he decided, you know what? I'm done with this Christian thing. And so he began to live for himself. And things were going well. He got married. Things were fine. He was in business. And all this is happening for him and so on. But then in his mid-30s, he decides, you know, he needs to go to church. His family, I mean, from time to time, he, would, he, he never stopped his family from going to church. But he himself didn't go. Occasionally, he might, but not really. So one time in his mid-30s, decides, you know what? He'll go to church with his family. He goes to his church. He listens to the message, and he's kind of like, huh, interesting. He's, he starts getting a little uncomfortable. 
And then he notices on the bulletin that there is a preacher coming into town and he's kind of interested, intrigued by this preacher. He's like, well, let's just go and hear what he has to say. He'll, ha- he'll be speaking Sunday night service and then he'll be there Monday night, Tuesday night, maybe Wednesday night, and then he's done. Okay, fine. So he talks to his wife. Sunday night, they're there. They're listening to this vis- guest preacher, an out-of-town preacher. And the out-of-town preacher is very eloquent and he preaches the gospel well and this man is quite uncomfortable. So he goes home and he's just kind of like, oh my, I need to go and hear this again. And so he talks to his wife, hey, hon, we have to go back to church on, Sunday, on, on Monday night to hear this guy. Wife says, okay, fine, let's go. So they go, he hears this man again, he's like, oh my goodness. He gets way more uncomfortable now. There is something happening inside. I think it was a Tuesday night when he decided to hear the voice of his shepherd who was calling. And so he left the watering hole and began to follow See, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. And this man became a Christian. Now, what's interesting is there are all sorts of crazy ways in which God chooses to save people. Crazy ways in which God chooses to call people. So, for example, there's a preacher in the United States. His name is C.J. Mahaney. And C.J. has a very interesting story, testimony of how he came to saving faith. Well, he was a drunk and a drug addict. So he drank himself stupid and used hard drugs. Now, while he was in the streets, in in one of the big cities in the United States, there were uh, various youth groups and other groups that would come to do evangelism there and spend time and just care for for the drug addicts in, 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 in the streets, the same way that happened, the same thing that happens here in Vancouver. And so as various groups came and they would be sharing Jesus, he was not interested in the least in the gospel. But there was this particular individual who had taken to CJ and kept just sharing the gospel. Every time this guy was in town, he'd look for CJ, find him, care for him, and share the gospel. So one time, CJ was higher than a kite. He was drunk and high on drugs. And this man just sat with CJ, prayed for him, prayed with him, and proceeded to share the gospel, you know? God created, man rebelled, Christ redeems, and Christ will come and make all things new. The gospel myths are being shared, and CJ, higher than a kite, says, the light bulb turned on. And he heard the shepherd's voice. And he left his watering hole and followed his Messiah, followed his shepherd, Or there's a story that is told of this Middle Eastern man. There was a Christian missionary in the Middle East who was there to do a few other things business-wise, but the real reason he was there was to evangelize to the Muslim population in this particular country. And so this Christian missionary had made friends with this particular Muslim guy and was just kind of slowly, tactfully sharing the gospel, finding common ground where they can share things of faith. And this missionary then would would be looking for ways in which he can articulate the gospel to this Muslim guy. You have to be careful because if you share the gospel with the wrong person, your head could roll easy. So as this uh, missionary is sharing, this person is listening. But this guy had, this Muslim guy had other issues in life that were not going well. And he was so distressed. So distressed to the point where he was saying he's going to take his life. So he had now determined on this particular day, he's going to take his life. 
But for some reason, he had to go to this Christian missionary's house to grab something or to, to, to just tie up a few loose ends. He had to go there. It was an inconvenience, but he kind of felt like, I got to go and take care of this thing. But at the end of the day today, I'm calling it. It's done. I'm done. I cannot continue living anymore. So the Muslim guy decides, okay, he wakes. So that day he gets ready. He is now on his way to this Christian's house. He boards the bus, riding, planning what, how he's going to end his life. And when he was about to get off the bus, the bus driver calls him. The guy turns, look at, looks at the bus driver's face, and the bus driver tells him, what you're planning to do, don't do it. That's all the bus driver said. And the guy was puzzled. Got off the bus, the door shut, the bus leaves. And so as the bus is gone, this uh, Muslim guy goes to the Christian's house and seated there, coffee is brought, uh, just chit chat here and there. The Christian decides, hey, let him go. To, uh, he, he went to the back to his room to grab a few things. And so this Muslim guy uh, starts looking around and he begins to look at the pictures on the wall. And this one particular picture that he was just drawn to. So he just stood and he stared at the picture, staring at the picture. The Christian comes out, finds this man staring at this picture, and the Muslim guy turns around and asks the Christian, why in the world do you have the bus driver's picture on your wall? To which the Christian laughed and said, actually, that's the picture of Jesus. What? And so the Muslim sits down and the Christian then proceeds to unpack the gospel, creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration. And right there, the light bulb turns on and this Muslim guy hears the voice of his shepherd calling him. See, the Lord calls. When Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Yeah, they hear the voice and they follow. Yes, there are those who will reject, those who hear the gospel call, but they don't follow. But those who follow according to Jesus, are his sheep. And how does the Lord call? How does he call today? Well, the Lord calls through the preaching of the gospel. When we share the gospel of Jesus, when we tell people, hey, God created all things. He created everything that is around us. Yes, you may say, yes, it's a big bang and all that. Yeah, but at the end of the day, who was the one who pushed the button? Who's the source of it all? God is. He created everything that's around including us in his image and likeness. But we who are created in his image and likeness, uh, we kind of don't want anything to do with God. We are rebellious, even from when we are young. Yes, we may be cute and nice, but we are cute little rebels. No parent will teach a child to lie. No parent will teach a child to steal. No parent will teach a child to be crafty and, and sneak around. But kids do these things, and when they grow up, all this rebellion grows and just matures with them. No one will, will train a child to be a rebel. And yet, we are rebellious ever since we are young. God created, but we have rebelled. And because of our rebellion, the price for our rebellion before God is death. Separation from God, eternal separation. But God loves us. He created us in his image and likeness. And because he loved us, he sent his son to do what? 
to redeem us. So God created, man rebelled, Christ has been sent to redeem. And how does he redeem? Christ now pays the penalty for our rebellion. You see, when we rebel, we break the laws of God. We, we break God's command. And where the law is broken, a price has to be paid. God can't say, okay, it's fine, I'll let it be. That would not be justice. It's just the same way. If someone robbed you, someone uh, brought significant harm to you, and you sue them, you take them before a judge, if the judge says, you know, it's okay, they are fine, you would say that's a wicked judge. Justice has not been served. Therefore, rebels deserve justice. But because God loves us so much, he sent his son Christ to do what? To pay the penalty for our rebellion. So God created, man rebelled, Christ paid the penalty for our rebellion, and Christ will come back again to make all things new. The mess and the brokenness in our world, Christ will come back and he'll make all things new. So how does Christ call when people hear that message? And it is possible that someone watching this who's not a Christian at this moment, as you're hearing that God created you and that you're rebellious before God, and now you're destined for God's judgment because of your rebellion. And Christ is saying, man, repent, repent of your sin because I have come to bring redemption for you. It is possible right now you're hearing the voice of your shepherd calling you. And Christ is saying, man, I'll come back and make all things new and the chaos that is around and the brokenness and the misery and the poverty and the, and the madness. I'll come to make all things new. This is how God calls through the preaching of the gospel. And why does he call? Because he loves. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God calls and he calls us because he loves us. And he's calling you. How will you respond? The shepherd is calling. The shepherd is whistling. The shepherd is tapping his staff. Don't ignore this call if you don't know him. So how ought we respond? Second point. Verse 13, look at it again. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then brothers, stand firm and hold, uh, and hold to the tradition that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So we'll stop there for now, verse 15. I became a Christian at a Christian youth camp. Now, the founder of this Christian youth camp, uh, and it's an international youth camp. The founder of this camp, uh, Christian camp is an American. And he was an American businessman before he became a Christian. And so he would travel from one city to the other, doing business and sleeping in hotels and so on, driving from place to place, flying to place to place. And it, it was always hotel, hotel, hotel. So one evening, he sat in his hotel room, tired, it had been a busy day, 
TV's off. He's just tired and he opens the drawer. And what does he see in there? A small little blue Bible. It's a Gideon's New Testament Bible. Some of you will know this Gideon's New, New Testament Bible. So he picks it up and he begins to peruse through it. See, when he grew up, he knew about Christ. He knew about Christmas, but he wasn't really religious. Didn't, didn't really interact with the gospel quite yet, though he kind of knew sort of. So he began to peruse through this Gideon's New Testament, like little words, and he doesn't really understand what it means. And then at the back, there was the gospel. It's very clear. Creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration. Gospel right there. And as he was going through the gospel, his light was standing on. His eyes began to open and his ears opened even more. And he believed alone in the hotel room, right there. He responded positively to the gospel. So the question is, how is it that he alone in this room, he's responding to this gospel? How is it that he's responding to it? Why did he not respond earlier? Maybe he had heard an itinerant preacher preaching or a crusade in his community. He had heard or probably interacted, sort of, met Christians, maybe prayed around the table Thanksgiving. But all those times he had kind of like interacted with the gospel, he was not interested. This particular time, tired, seated in his hotel room alone, reading this New Testament, and at the back it has the gospel message, he comes to saving faith. What was going on there? So you will notice in verse 13 again, we ought always to give thanks uh, to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruit to be saved. How? Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Through sanctification by the Spirit. What does that mean? So this means the Spirit of God is the one that opens your eyes. If anything, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes there saying... We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Have you ever seen a dead thing? Like a, a dead animal, a, a, a dead, like a dead ant. Something that's dead cannot do anything. It is lifeless. Can't do anything for itself. So Paul says here that we were just as dead as that dead thing. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead to God. So there had to be something external that would awaken us. An outside force had to move us along to enable us to, to actually comprehend the love of God. Something had to happen to us for our eyes to be open that we may know who Jesus is. See, there's a story, a friend of mine, who he was also sharing with me how he'd become a Christian, and he told me he is married, he had a wife, but he was just living a hard life. Like he's a dude's dude, into the smoking and drinking and partying and all of it, right? And so that is who he was. But then life started just going sideways. Now he had a sister who had um, become a Christian, and the sister was always inviting this guy and his family to go to church. But this guy was like, there's no way I'm going to, 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 to grace the door of a church. No way. I'm not going to church at all. I'm never going to darken the, the, the door of a church, ever. He had refused. 
But things were not going well for him. His marriage was on the rocks. Uh, life was not good. Things were miserable. Business wasn't going very well. So one Sunday morning, he woke up, and all of a sudden, he just felt like, I need to go to church today. I need to go to church today. I have to go to church today. So he wakes his wife up. They wake up the kids. We got to go to church. And the wife is like, Pastor, what are you talking about? Yeah, we got to go to church. Got to go to church. So they load up the vehicle and they drive across town to the different city where his sister lived. That's where they're going to go to church. So they went to the sister's church, sat down there. They're weird, awkward. They don't know how to behave. He's never been to church. Like he doesn't know how to, how to be. Okay, people are singing songs. What do I do? I don't want to kind of stand out, but, but I actually don't fit in. So it was a sermon time and the pastor preached the gospel message. And as the pastor was preaching, it was as though the pastor was speaking right to him. And he got so uncomfortable. At the end of the service, he was kind of like, we got to go, we got to go, we got to go. And so he's just telling his wife, there's just something happening. There's something not sitting right with me. Something is not sitting right. So he goes home. He's just panting and things are not, things are not the way they used to be, at least internally for him. So he phones the sister. Hey, you know, after he came to church, man, I'm not, I'm not Okay. So the sister said, hey, why don't I connect you with our pastor? Maybe he can help you. Okay, fine, set it up. So they meet for breakfast. As they're there for breakfast, pastor's just finding out this guy's story and all that. He proceeds to share the gospel. Creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration. As the pastor is unpacking the gospel and its nuances, this guy begins to bawl. He's crying and crying and bawling and bawling. And the pastor decides, as the pastor is watching this guy melting down, the pastor says, dude, you know what? I will leave you with that. Because the pastor knows there's conviction happening here. And the pastor leaves. The guy's just weeping. So he's finished his breakfast or trying to. And then he cleans himself up, jumps into his truck, goes to work. A couple of days later, he's still not settled. A couple of days later, he's driving to work in the morning and he's just bawling. And he pulls over the highway and the freeway. And right there, right there, the Spirit of God who had been convicting him and working on him, sanctifying him, brought him to the family of God. And this man surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. He surrendered, his, became a Christian. He surrendered, he responded positively as the Spirit of God was wooing him and opening his eyes. But as Pastor Mark shared a few weeks ago, coming to saving faith, surrendering to Christ is just the first step. How you finish matters. How you finish matters. Remember this Romanian brother who was a former drunk who I talked about at the beginning of the sermon? Well, this guy came to church. So now remember, I was in Romania, and the reason I was there was to encourage Joseph, the church planter, in his efforts planting a church. Now, Joseph had a small little tiny church. There were barely 10, 12 people there, 15 at most, kids included. So myself and my colleague pastor, friend, pastor a pastor friend of mine, we had gone there to, to preach on the weekend. So my buddy was the one preaching that particular Sunday, uh, to encourage this small body of, uh, of, of believers, the entire community, not Christian. If anything, they're very skeptical and suspicious of this small group that are calling themselves evangelical Christian. The, the, the entire community is believing in this cult movement, wanting nothing to do with them. So my buddy is a preacher. This former drunk and his wife 
are there the church. So that my, my buddy preaches a good message, 25 to 30 minute sermon, really well done. There was an interpreter there, so it was probably like a, more like a 40 minute sermon, um, call it 45 minutes of total preaching time, including the interpreter. So when my buddy had finished uh, preaching, there was one more song and then the service was done. And so different people came to say thank you for coming and so on, others asking for prayer. This former drunk came to my buddy and said, is that all you had for us today? And my buddy's like, yeah, that's all you had, yeah. This former drunk said, see, I walked 30 kilometers to come here. I walked, didn't bike, didn't take a vehicle, I walked. And I walked here so that I may feast the word of God. So brother, don't you have anything else for us today? See, what was this, what was this man doing? This former drunk, what was he doing? This man was now committing himself to holding on to the gospel message. He couldn't have enough of this gospel. He wanted to stand firm. And the only way he, he knew to stand firm is to be deeply grounded in the gospel. See, he had no few. We have all sorts of ways in which you can stand firm in the gospel. All sorts of ways in which you can hold fast to it. These men's and women's Bible studies. Come to church regularly. Join a community group. Have um, a friend group, an accountability group where you can share not just what the Canucks are doing or how they will play or whatever, but sharing the gospel with one another. All sorts of ways in which you can plug in either online or in person as well, where you can plug in and actually know and understand the gospel so that you may stand firm. You see, one of the ways in which to hold fast to the gospel is to engage the message over and over. For example, Ephesians chapter 1 will tell us this. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. Question, do you know what these blessings are? Do you? See, the scripture has all sorts of words that describe what took place before, during, and after our salvation. So I'll give you an example of some of these words in no particular order. Election, chosen, adopted, atonement, propitiation, redemption, predestination, justification, sanctification, glorification. All these are our words. Question, do we know them? Do you know them? Do you know them? These are our words. So as we study the gospel and its nuances, you will be amazed. The more you study the gospel, the more amazed you'll be at what it took to save a sinner like yourself. And as you're amazed, you'll be humbled at the price that Christ paid for your sin. And as you're humbled, you'll begin to have this high view of God's sovereignty, knowing and believing and understanding that God our Father in heaven has absolute control over everything. And if that's the case then, as you have this high view of God, then that will lead you to death-defying mission. Because you know, hey, if I go, if it's the Father's will for my life to, to be laid down for the sake of these people, then I will go because the Father's will. But if it's the Father's will for me not to die, but I still need to go there and share the gospel, you will go. You will go. As we meditate on the gospel every day, 
Whether you're gone to a death-defying mission or whether you stay in Canada, as you study the gospel, you will begin to forgive. You'll be for, begin to forgive your fellow brother and sister in Christ because you will know now, you will remember the gospel remind you that Christ forgave you of all your rebelliousness. Not only that, you will give generously. Why? Because the gospel will remind you that God did not spare his own son, or you will endure hardship. Why? Because you will remember the hardship that Christ endured on your account, and you'll be willing to die for the cause of Christ. Why? Because you'll remember that Christ died for who? For you. Study the gospel that you may stand firm in it. But as we stand firm, we are not always left to our own devices, are we? God doesn't leave us to our own devices. Third point, God strengthens us. Look at verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may this God now, verse 17, comfort our hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So you all know that we are very much involved here at Northview in multiplication. So I was in one of our regions where we're involved in church planting. And the purpose for my visiting there was A, to see the work that's happening, B, to encourage the congregations there, and C, to train the pastors. So we had a lunch meeting with all these pastors who are part of the network that we are involved with. We trained them, encouraged them, ate lunch together. And then we each, uh, it was myself and a few others, a few elders from our church were with us as well, with me as well. And so we now divided ourselves to say, hey, in the evening, so-and-so you'll go to this person's church and so on and so forth. So I was assigned to go to a specific church with one of the pastors whom I had eaten lunch with. And I was fine with that. So come evening time after dinner, this particular pastor comes to pick me up. And so I meet him at uh, the lobby of our hotel and his face was downcast and I wondered what is going on. And he said, Ezra, when we were eating lunch, the authorities had raided our church and they were totally ransacking the place, looking around, asking all sorts of questions, threatening to, to, to take us into custody. And so he said he doesn't know if the authorities will come back because they said they'll come back. And so he said after lunch, when he went back to church, he found them there and they really grilled him for hours. And so he was quite concerned. And so now he's picking me up to go to this particular church. And I'm like, oh, dear, oh, dear. So we jump into the vehicle and we're driving away from the hotel and now into the villages. There's no, no street lighting, nothing. There's just chaos and people everywhere and it's dark at night. And I'm like, oh my word, what if the authorities come? Even if we chose to run, I have no idea where I'd be going because I've never been to this country, never been to this region. I don't speak the language. I definitely will stand out like a sore thumb. Now what? So we get to the church and um, we hear, I hear the believers singing on top of their voices. And obviously it was one of the villagers who had reported the church. One of the villagers had reported the church to the authorities. And so now I'm thinking to myself, I'm thinking, man, guys, if you just hush a little bit, like don't, don't ruffle the feathers here. Don't take them off. Calm down a little bit. No, they are singing on top of their voices. And I sat down and I began to wonder, oh boy, 
is it simply, I'm, I'm afraid, I'm concerned for my own safety, I don't want to be taken into custody, I want to come back to Canada, like, but they don't seem to care, like what's going on here? And I'm wondering, are they simply better Christians than I? Are they simply better, the, better Christians than I? Do they have stronger faith than me? Do they, or is there something else happening here? And I think something else was happening. God was alleviating their distress and establishing this little community. Notice this prayer that Paul gives. Again, verse 16, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loves us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts. What does, what does that comfort your hearts mean? The comfort your heart basically means he will alleviate the stress, the distress you're feeling. The weight and the heaviness and the fear and the concern you have, the Lord will come and alleviate it. And not only that, and may he establish your heart. What is to establish? To establish here is to grant them to have a firm determination that Christ is who he says he is. And that is why, by the power of God, they're able to sing in the face of imminent danger. So are they better Christians or is the Spirit of God at work? See, the Spirit of God is at work in this particular community. And this is what Paul is praying for, for the Thessalonian church, that God may comfort their hearts and establish them. See, Joseph, the church plant I talked about here, there was joy in the midst of struggle. Why? As he was church planting in this particular community, he was in constant battle with the priest of this cult that was just calling people and shaming people who would abandon their cult to become Christian. And this priest would threaten people saying he will not pray for them because the priest was the mediator between man and God. or so, And he would receive payment to pray for people. And so he kept threatening the, the, the members of the community, don't talk to the church planter. And in anyone who talked to the church planter, then he would tell the entire community, don't have anything to do with that person who's talking to this church planter. And so Joseph was just struggling, trying to reach out and people wanting nothing to do with him, nothing to do with him. And he only made 200 US dollars a month, barely making ends meet. And yet he always had a smile on his face. Why? Why? Because God was comforting his heart. Each month there was always concerns. Are we, am I going to have bread on the table? Am I going to make ends meet? Am I going to be safe? And God comforted his heart and established it. Granted him this firm determination, this dogged resolve to say the gospel of Christ is worth the suffering that I'm enduring here. Folks, may I say this? May we take an example, may we borrow a leaf from Paul, where we begin to give thanks to the Lord for the salvation of the other, for the salvation of our other brother and sister in Christ. Let's thank God for one another, irrespective of whether we agree with each other theologically or on other issues or not. But as we thank God, let us be reminded of the salvific call that was ours. And then may we live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, trusting that God would comfort our hearts and alleviate the tension and the anxiety we feel about the challenges and struggles that 
are there and may God then establish us, meaning may he grant us this firm determination to know that we will still remain faithful in the face of all sorts of challenges we face. We will remain faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. May the Lord help us in these things. Let's pray. Father, for your truth, we thank you. Thank you for this opportunity you've given us to interact with with your word. We ask that, Lord, by your spirit, would you help these words now come alive in our hearts and in our day-to-day. In Christ I pray. Amen.